Welcome to the Brain Health Revolution podcast with your hosts, Aisha and Dean Sherzai. We're so glad to be here with another episode. This one is going to be fun. It's just Dean and I, and we're going to discuss the research, some of the interesting research that was conducted in 2022. I know that this is the end of January by the time this episode goes out, but nevertheless, it's a great opportunity to kind of take a deep dive into some of these fascinating studies that in many ways are going to set the path for more interesting studies and expanded ones in 2023. This is important to us because we think that some of them, some of the studies are kind of fun, you'll see, uh, interesting and maybe not tremendously groundbreaking, but the rest are important studies that are creating the foundation going forward into 23 and beyond. And some of the technology that's coming out will absolutely change healthcare and especially neuroscience uh, absolutely completely. In fact, when we talk to our medical students, we tell them that um, if you're going into the field of medicine and neuroscience especially, have a different perspective because the next five years will not look the same as the past 200 years. That's how fast we're changing. So uh, I hope you you like some of these topics. Let's start with the one that talks about napping and yeah. dementia. We don't want to shock them into this. So relax, take a, you know, uh, sit comfortably, and let's start with napping. Napping is fascinating. Uh, I remember um, the two of us, we created this post for Instagram on napping, and we got a lot of different messages from our friends in the field of neuroscience because there was there was no consensus, let's just put it that way, and that is true. Um, there have been some research done that shows that people who nap on a regular basis may be at higher risk for cognitive impairment later on in life, but if it's done in a proper way and among people who don't have any risk factors, it could potentially be beneficial. And this particular study wanted to look at the potential bidirectional relationship between napping and Alzheimer's disease. The population in this study included were from the Rush Memory and Aging Project, which is a longitudinal study of aging and dementia in Chicago. And it included 1,788 participants who were had a mean age of 81.7 years. And the results showed that daytime napping was associated with an increased risk of Alzheimer's disease with an odds ratio of 1.45, which means they were 45% higher um, at risk for developing Alzheimer's disease. And the results also showed that Alzheimer's disease was associated with an increased risk of daytime napping, which means that when people have Alzheimer's disease, they nap more. Yeah, and, and napping is always an important factor uh, with, with regards to sleep because we're beginning to learn more and more about sleep. And uh, ironically, as much as we've learned, there's so much more to learn. These eight hours where we're completely vulnerable, there has to be so much more to it. Okay, so now we know that there's a cleansing phenomenon and there's memory consolidation. And then there's those phases that you have to go through the phase, you know, um, the steps of sleep. And you have to go through these phases at least four to five times a night. We got that. And then when you do EEG findings in the MRI and in the patients who are going through sleep, you see these different kind of wave patterns develop throughout these phases from the alpha to beta and then to um, the theta and, and slower and slower as, as we get to deeper levels of sleep. And slower and slower doesn't mean that the brain is not functioning. It actually means that it's preparing for other functions. And just last week, we found that these K complexes, which are unusual patterns on the EEG, actually served a purpose as far as memory consolidation. It's, it's remarkable how much we've learned and also how much we need to learn. The duration also matters because the duration is also related to how much time you need to get this cleansing and memory consolidation done, but also is dependent on the depth of sleep that you're getting during the night. Mm -hmm. If you're not getting good depth of sleep, then the duration elongates itself to make up for that. It appears that's the case. Also depends on so many other factors, your day, the how much um, stress you've had, what kind of foods you've had. All of these things affect the quality of sleep. And once we become more knowledgeable about this, we'll actually be able to manage the most important spa you have, which is your sleep time. Mm -hmm. 
a spot that's available to you every night to cleanse and, uh, and consolidate and organize the brain. So napping is a, is a canary in the coal mine. I hate to use that, that, that analogy, but uh, you know, it gives us a little bit of a window into what's happening deeper inside our sleep cycle. If you need naps, even if you've slept seven to eight hours, for the great majority, as you can see, I'm not overstating, I'm, not, I'm, I'm trying to hedge uh, a little bit. For the great majority, it means that you really are not getting deep sleep. And this, although this study didn't directly speak to that in great um, degrees, but it kind of points to it that why is it that people who um, have Alzheimer's are, you know, requiring greater sleep, including naps? And you and I have seen this in our patients, thousands of patients that we've seen. One of the most common things you see in Alzheimer's patients is bad sleep, wakefulness during the night, or even when they sleep during the night, they actually have naps during the day hypersomnolence during the day. It's because at night, they really are not restful. You see them moving all the time. They're not paralyzed, which is what happens for a great part of your sleep. So this should be something telling for the rest of us that if you need naps during the day, especially if you've slept, slept seven to eight hours, it's, it's grounds right. to get some investigation going. It's that canary thing. Something's going on. Get it checked. And for those who have, uh, so it puts you at risk for Alzheimer's as well. Why? Because people who don't have good restorative sleep, they're not cleansing their brain. They're not consolidating memory. So therefore, they're increasing the risk of Alzheimer's. I know I'm extrapolating a lot from this data, but that comes from all the other papers we've read. But this paper just stood out, especially since it came out last year. It really stood out by showing that relationship between napping and end-stage disease, which is Alzheimer's. Uh, and, and I always tell people, take your sleep time seriously, take your nap seriously. Yeah. So I think bottom line, instead of treating naps as a biohacking method of improving your brain health, which everybody wants a really quick fix for, for their brain health nowadays, I think it's important, like you said, to value those seven to eight hours of sleep. And if you're young, if you're healthy, if you take a nap here and there, I think nobody's going to get Especially harmed. Especially short naps. Correct. N not less than, not more than 20 minutes and not after 3 p.m., I believe, right? Because it really affects your circadian rhythm. Uh, but the most important thing is focusing on those seven to eight hours of deep restorative sleep and not needing any naps to make up for it. Yeah. And here... We did something we usually try not to do, which is we went beyond the data. But this is one of those conversations where we're actually having fun with the data. So take it for that. Take it as uh, not us being very rigid with the data, but also playing around with all the other stuff that we've read. But the, the but the, this paper is interesting, and and uh, we'll make it available and see what you come out uh, come uh, you know how you anal analyze the data. But uh, nap if you're gonna nap, nap short time and. Find out why you need to nap so much. All right. So the next paper is about cannabis use and persistent cognitive impairment. There was a study that was published in the Journal of Neuropsychopharmacology, and they found that those who used cannabis on a regular basis at least once in the past year, of, you know, based on the questionnaire that they used, um, they looked at data from 1,121 participants who were between the ages of 18 to 30 years, and uh, they found out that people who are regular cannabis users had difficulty with their cognitive function, but specifically with their working memory, learning, executive functioning, and attention. And they found out that uh, people who consistently used cannabis, they had more pronounced problems with these domains of cognition. Yeah, yeah. And, and we've, this is not so much new. We've, we've known that cannabis has effect on memory and especially heavy users. I mean, up to now, we, we knew that heavy users had um, a significant problem with short-term memory and attention and executive function. And this kind of further corroborated that it's not the greatest of databases, it's not the greatest of research, but it just is a, a, a study that, that kind of confirms what we've known. And we're going to learn more and more, both bad and good. I mean, I have to say, for many years, we've actually avoided this topic because of we put some 
political tinge on it and we didn't uh, approach a, a drug that has bioactive receptors in our body so why would we avoid doing research on a, on a, on a substance that could be used um, and now we're beginning to understand it more its benefits potentially even components of it and and also harm but i want to make sure that one thing should be said though that this uh, a lot of times we overshoot when we correct a phenomenon and there for a while out there even in our own friends circle and others it was almost as if people thought that cannabis was was a miracle drug and it had no faults it was it, there was nothing wrong with it and it was almost miraculous it would cure things there will be nothing like that in a pharmaceutical world in the near future so everything should be taken with a grain of salt with research leading the way and research leading the way in, in with with caution because they can have consequences they can have significant long-term consequences and that's just the neurological component it's still something that most people smoke use you know they use it uh, smoke there are other paths as well and it can have an effect on the lung as well and we've seen studies that have shown that as well so i want a, a bit of caution but not uh, a perspective where we stop looking at this paralysis. very, yeah, paralysis, this incredibly useful, potentially useful and important substance. Um, and and uh, I think this is, this is the working back from the overshoot that we're seeing because we've seen multiple papers now come out and, and on, uh, on the same level. In fact, we, we saw a recent paper that showed that children of mothers that use cannabis during pregnancy have much higher anxiety levels, not just during childhood, but even later in life. So it has a long-term effect. Again, that even that data has to be corroborated and, and reproduced and looked over over time. But we can see that um, uh, consequences other than just positive that were uh, alluded to uh, at the beginning. Um, this is just the beginning. We're going to have many more years of research in this topic. Not just this, but other drugs like psilocybin and others that are being studied right now. I, I feel that when it comes to research on cannabis, marijuana, and some of the other psychoactive uh, drugs, there's a lot of confounding factors that are not taken into consideration. Um, people who may have certain proclivities, whether it's for psychological diseases or um, a higher state of anxiety, etc., may be using more of these drugs um, compared to those who may not have these problems. And so those things are usually not cleanly accounted for, maybe accounted for by just bluntly by history. But like you said, there are so many factors that have to be taken into consideration. On the other hand, we can't really fall for nature's fallacy. Something that is natural, that is plant always has to be good. Not necessarily. I'm really looking forward for better research and better information. And especially as we get better in neuroimaging techniques and neuroimmunology to look at this specific physiological changes that the brain experiences acutely and chronically when they're exposed to such compounds. Beautiful I'm really, story. really looking forward to that. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. All right. So let's talk about the next one. And this was fascinating. The topic is some people who are in coma may be conscious. That sounds yeah. like a title for a movie. It, it's definitely a movie. It's a... Uh, it's a. It could be a, a, a horror movie, or it could be a, a, a sci-fi movie, or a, but but nonetheless, it's this is this is fascinating. It is, and, and especially for someone who uh, works in the neuro ICU, exactly. especially when we, um, you know, when somebody comes in with um, a traumatic brain injury or a stroke, and they have to be intubated and they have to be medicated to be in a coma, that completely changed my perspective. So let me go ahead and uh, read the study. Before we go on, I mean, I, we didn't want to make light of this because we both had parents that went through this so i i want to make sure that you know we uh, that we weren't making light of the fact that uh, people in coma that are going you know uh, might be conscious because uh, my own father had experienced nine days of coma before before um the end and and we we always were worried about that and i'm 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 100 sure that every family member that has a, a family member who's in coma actually worries about just that I'll, uh, we'll talk about this in more detail, but let's go into what they found specifically. So this study was conducted by researchers in the University of Liège. Did I 
butcher that word? It's good enough for me. Okay. Yes. In Belgium, found that some people <clears throat> who appear to be in a coma may actually be conscious. The study involved 54 patients who were in a vegetative state or in a minimally conscious state. The researchers used a combination of brain imaging and EEG to measure the, the patient's brain activity. And they found that 10 of the 54 patients showed signs of consciousness, even though they appeared to be in a coma. And they concluded that some patients who appear to be in a coma may actually be conscious and that further research is needed to better understand this phenomenon. That is incredible. So they essentially define consciousness by the appearance or the existence of certain brain waves that are corroborated with wakefulness. They actually did something more than that. They, they were having conversations with the patients and they saw brain waves changing with the conversations. So that's, and, and where it was changing, it wasn't just a reflexive res response, auditory response but at a higher level of the brain where it would, it would be beyond just reflexive auditory response. So that still doesn't speak to consciousness, but it speaks to a higher level of responsiveness that could, could be a, 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 a facade or, or, or a, a, a forerunner or a, a manifestation of, a kind of manifestation of consciousness or awareness. Remember, consciousness is not a binary thing. It's a, this is a controversial topic in itself. It's a, it's a continuum, right? Different levels of consciousness. And we see this patients coming out of coma slowly in this delirious state and fog state, and then higher and higher and higher. So I think that the, the title is, is titillating, but, but what they're talking about is that this uh, cortical responsiveness to uh, specific uh, uh, kind of uh, conversations. And that's important enough. That tells us that it's not completely um, the, disconnected from the world around, at least for these people. And that matters because then one can actually create a communication pathway potentially. We're, very, we're a little further away from that, but that, that would be uh, the, the next step as far as not just understanding whether they're responding, but can they respond in particular ways. This is also important because of treatment and how we should, you know, the, decide on the vegetative state or brain death state of somebody. I mean, brain death is more clear. Mm -hmm. You don't see a uh, brain wave at all, or you see a flat line. And There's, there are objective there, there measures. Are obje yeah, and there are objective measures. But we often kind of uh, respond to patients before those parameters are met. And this should give us a little pause. And to kind of do a little more research as far as what this means. Um, the parameters are going to continue because this is not enough data to tell us that, oh, this person is completely conscious. No, not, not even close. But it tells us for some, there might be some way of connecting or maybe a lower level of consciousness, which we may later decide that it's, that's not even consciousness. Uh, but I think this was a breakthrough. Um, it, again, with science, it's not just all or none. I, we see this in, in social media where people all of a sudden say, um, uh, look, they, science said this, and then they change their, change their mind. mind. We don't. It's, it's systematic adjustments and slow adjustments over time and getting used to greater complexity. And this is another measure of complexity. The same way we talked about napping and us learning about more complexity of what sleep is. This is another level of complexity that we're, we're beginning to uh, be aware of. From personal experience, um, when patients are in a coma, well, they are given medication to keep them at that stage. It, it, dif it differs. There's a spectrum of different forms of being in a coma. Yeah. But one thing that I think will immediately <clears throat> help us uh, with this particular information is treatment of pain. For example, meeting the patient's needs, making them comfortable, yes. making sure that they're surrounded by voices and stimuli that make them comfortable. So all of this is going to be very, very helpful, and I'm really excited to learn more about it. I want to pick on a word that you said, and I want to find out if you care to expand on it. Mm -hmm. You said that it could be controversial, the concept of consciousness and what it means, and, and in this particular definition, what did you mean by that? Well, I, I'm always bemused by the fact that people throw around the word consciousness and, and, and as if we know what, what it is, or even if it is something. 
if it's not an emergent state of awareness that's um, uh, that that we make a big deal out of, um, I'm not even making I'm not even making the statement that we shouldn't make a big deal out of it. But the fact that we, without without even regard, we make a big deal out of it and make such grandiose statements about consciousness that it is a unique human thing. And, and and uniquely, it puts us at a different stage. And some people we know make grandiose statements beyond humanity and, and into space and universe and all of these things. And, and that just blows my mind that you can actually go to that level with minimal data. At this point, whether consciousness is a thing is, is of question. The emergent state of in any one minute where I experienced myself as a separate entity from others and as an existing being that can experience the outside world is so fleeting and so tenuous that I'm actually more scared of the lack of consciousness and throughout the day than the presence of those moments of consciousness. During, during sleep, we're not conscious, at least not to the extent that everybody else talks about it. So... Again, we have to define consciousness, which I don't have a good definition of, uh, beside what I just said. And if that's the definition of it, which is this fleeting state of hyper-awareness about myself in space and time. During sleep, we don't have that. Throughout the day, we're going through these repetitive motions and it's uh, habits and reflexes that have no thought and awareness in them. In fact, you've, you've experienced this. You've driven from one point to the next point without even knowing how you got there. That wasn't consciousness. That was just you being aware of your physical state. So to that end, I'm, I, I, I want our conversations to be pulled back and be a little humble. I mean, I, I hate when people use the word humble when it serves their purpose, but when, when it's grandiose statements about humanity, we go all out uh, without any data. And by pulling back on this concept of consciousness, it gives us pause and, and lets us see the totality of consciousness out there, be it in other beings like animals and others, and also gives us uh, an ability to see if there's a possibility of expanded consciousness, true expanded consciousness. Yeah, meditation mindfulness gets you to protracted moments of awareness, higher awareness. I don't know if I'm going to go to like... Uh, the, the extrapolation some people make, but is it possible maybe through technology, maybe through some other techniques to reach such higher levels of consciousness that you're not just this fleeting awareness, but you're grounded, greater awareness that you have control over. Um, let's end it at that. There's so much more that we can speak about that. But, uh, and in this context, now, what I just said, imagine putting that in this context where you've seen some uh, some waves change from theta to beta or from theta to alpha, maybe, uh, when somebody spoke to you. That doesn't even tell you about what level of consciousness, if at all. It just says that there's a little bit of maybe brain detecting a noise that it recognizes or not even recognizes. At the subcortical level, it's recognized. So this uh, this is extremely important because if there's anything we value as humans we value is the fact and that's why we protect it that's why we care create stories that's why we we create this amazing you know fabric of thought and stories around this which is our consciousness i've, I've you've noticed that when i bring this up in my family gatherings which people, they're not neuroscientists but the one thing that brings emotions is when i uh, diminish the concept of consciousness it just becomes a very emotional conversation without any data just people just protecting it and attacking it and so on and so forth so um i think it's an important concept um uh, this study indirectly touches on it but but i wanted to kind of expand it or thank you for expanding it making me expand on on what we think about consciousness and where we think we might go by taking it in a more serious way so i know you watch a lot of you, you you watch a lot of videos and you've read so much. You were telling me about consciousness and the bicameral mind the other day. And from your readings and from what you have seen in the recent past, what excites you about the expansion of our, our knowledge of consciousness as far as the latest technology is concerned? I mean, let's think about the, 
what what the fabric or the 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 underlying parts the little things that make up our consciousness is language let's say at least many people believe that and i believe that and this is still controversial and not language in the way that where there are sentences verbs and nouns stories that are telling of particular experiences that are in our heads metaphors metaphors these are representations of things that are in our head now go into your own mind and and try to get that that concept of anything it is you it's almost like trying to you know hold on to sand it's it's fleeting it's it's, it's it just goes through and you can't get a hold of it you can't substantiate it you 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 can't hold on to it in a way where it feels less like as if i have permanent um uh, uh, control over it even our dreams when we we recall them there are recreations our memories are recreations for the most part what if we can actually have better access almost like um technology technological access where if i want this memory it comes to me solidly and it's there as long as I want it. And I, and I can connect it to another piece of memory at the same time without, without this other memory being lost or this other information being lost or this other story being lost. If you can hold multiple of these together at multiple dimensions in space in your mind, imagine that level of consciousness as opposed to this one fleeting storyline that you barely have a hold on and you say, wow, that's my consciousness. That's where I hope we will go, and that's scary to many. But imagine our ability to hold on to thousands of those stories at once and get a greater clarity, greater awareness, greater joy, profound joy that you can actually maintain. Not this emotional game that we play that the emotion is there and goes away. Even the best happiness, the, the highest level happiness, epiphany, just goes away and you're like grasping for it but it's gone because there's nothing to hold on to it's a storyline that went away with an emotion both of them connect connected at one point and then they dissipated and went away what if we can have control over all of that extremely controversial but aspirational i mean with that comes a lot of other things that we have to learn about and know that we're not gonna lose control of, the fact that we're not gonna lose control of our humanity, or the fact that our whole entire concept of humanity and consciousness changes completely. But that's a good aspiration, yeah. to get to that level of control over our emotions, thoughts, stories, concepts, ideas. Imagine you can manipulate a thousand pieces of data in your mind and 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 come up with a higher level of, uh, you know, um, higher level innovation, invention, thought, emotion. We don't have that. As much as we think we're this amazing beings, our consciousness is pretty pretty weak. I love that. With that, the, the future I feel is, is bright. The future <laughs> really is bright. Is. Yes, it really is. And we'll talk about some of the technology. Okay. Well, coming back to Earth, <clears throat> um, let's go ahead and talk about some of the other research that... Uh, we're done in 2022. Um, I, I think we did talk about aducanumab, and this was a medication for Alzheimer's disease that was approved uh, in uh, 2021, but it kind of the story carried on in 2022 as well, and I thought it would be important to touch on it. We have a completely separate podcast on the subject, and this was on the falsification of the data around amyloid hypothesis in 2006. So as you may have heard, um, a scientist in uh, Vanderbilt University who happens to be uh, a good friend of ours, Dr. Matthew Schrag, he uncovered evidence suggesting some manipulation of several images in the work of a researcher who authored a seminal paper that essentially shaped the course of Alzheimer's research in 2006. And there was a lot of hoopla about it. And, um, you know, doctors and scientists um, noted those, those flaws. 
but it just kind of took its own life on social media and everybody started saying things like this has misdirected tens of millions of dollars of research and that this was a wrong path to take and it was a complete waste of time. But it shouldn't really weaken our trust in that model because the amyloid theory still is in play and it does have a role in Alzheimer's disease. And we did talk about that with some of the other guests in the podcast. And instead of completely throwing out that concept and that research, we should just identify the specific mistakes that were made, learn from that and move on. And that's what has been done so far as far as research is concerned. Yeah, and and and, and I tell you, there was... You kind of know who's going to overshoot and and overstate the the, the falsehood. Um, it, it, it was people that wanted to weaken the concept of science. Science is wrong. Look, they are wrong again. My goodness, look around you. It's all science. Everything around you is science. Yes, science. Science. The scientific. The scientists make mistakes. The scientific. You know, the the science could actually be a partial truth. That does not that's overstated by scientists or it could be a bad science done by scientists but there's nothing you can blame on science because science is not a person or a thing it's a process and it's a process of self-improvement you, you don't even have to focus on the scientific method it's about a process of self-improvement of data analysis data capture data interpretation and extrapolation it, it, if there's any humility, it's in science because it starts with the null hypothesis trying to disprove itself. And and this was bad scientists doing bad science. Um, and that happens and, and they got caught. And I also I, want to add that sometimes mistakes are made by good scientists as well. They yes. don't necessarily have to have nefarious intentions for the results to be bad. Um, there is a notion and a thought process and I don't blame people. I don't blame them because... Uh, when you're looking up to a a um, you know to authority, mm -hmm. let's say in this realm it's the pharmaceuticals or the doctors, or let's just put all of them Academ in one academia. Academia, um, they they have high hopes, and when there is a mistake, and I want to, I, I think this is a good opportunity for us to expand on this because it relates to you know some of the other um, studies that we just talked about as well, mistakes or errors in science and science being okay with showing their errors and their flaws and the the backlash that we get from the public i shouldn't say we but you know essentially the academia gets from the public is quite harsh and there's almost a complete loss of respect and trust in academia when they find out mistakes that shouldn't be the way it should be dealt with it should be dealt with as a process improvement and i think that's how academia sees it. That's how the world of health and science sees it. And it's like, oh, we made a mistake or somebody made a mistake, whether there were some nefarious intentions or not. Here's the problem. Let's not do it again. Moving on. Yeah. But it doesn't feel like that in public. I want you to expand on that. Why is that so? Um, so because the methodology is so different. It's a different universe. Um, the, the world of science is so self-critical and there's a bit of competition as well. I mean, um, the competition is around grants. The competition is around um, um, notoriety. The competition is around positions in, in academia. So if you think that scientists are going to let people get away with things, you couldn't be more wrong. I mean, there's, there's a constant onslaught of finding errors in others. And besides the fact that there's a peer review process looking at your studies, making sure that it's correct. Yeah, the peer review process is not perfect. Some of these things should be changed. How funding is given uh, and, and how funding is, uh, is selected is, is pretty good, but it can be improved. How studies are accepted um, and uh, that should be, be improved. How, uh, but, but still, it's worked enough to get us all of this. We're talking, we've mapped the DNA, we are getting the protein structures from, you know, the, the, the amount of work we've done in the last 30 years is just bewildering. Um, and, and, and then as far as the peer process, it's the journal, some journals, the, their peer review process is terrible. They actually tell you to get your own reviewers, which, I mean, you would go get your friends to say yes to the paper. I mean, that's, that's, that's one way, but so it, it, that should be improved as well. 
and there should be greater oversight. The, the last thing is the public should become aware of what truly goes on in the scientific realm, what, it, what is required for something to be considered valid, and what does validity mean? Just because one paper came out and said this, I mean, in social media, it's one anecdote is enough for 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 research uh, for 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 validity, or one paper that comes out and says, you know, if you dip yourself in hot water and or in, in sauna and your life is going to be extended, and all of a sudden everybody's doing it, without any reproduction, dip without whatever, cold water, hot water, hot water, cold water, starve yourself, do this. I mean, it's 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 the shocking thing, and the guy that walks around and without a shirt and then dives in the ice. I mean. My goodness, that that let's do the science and let's let's all become aware of what forget about the word science, what it takes for us to believe something. It should be a methodology that's devoid or has minimal bias. There's nothing without bias, but minimal bias. It should be a method that is actually reproducible by somebody else that's not at all connected. It should not be funded by organizations that have interest in it. But even if they do, it there should be oversight to make sure that the interpretation is done in a very unbiased way. I talked about reproduction. Others should reproduce the same data. Um, it should be large enough and to, to be considered, you know, to reduce the amount of error potentially. So these are the things that that need to be out there for all of us, as as not just scientists but as human beings in a complex world, in a complex world where things can be falsified and and marketing can take over, we really, above all, have to learn critical thinking and critical analysis of data, critical analysis of information coming to us. And critical analysis of information isn't in, in, in silos that confirm our biases. Is it, it's in this methodology is where is the data coming from? Is it reproducible? Is it this, that, and the other? And if not, then whatever the source, we reject it. The same goes here. Um, this was one error, uh, one falsification. Did it negate the amyloid theory? By the way, it didn't even negate the amyloid theory altogether. As the next story will tell you, the only drug that's ever been shown to work on Alzheimer's is focused on amyloid. Right. And even us who we talked about lifestyle, we say that amyloid has a component in it. For some, about 3 to 5%, it's a major component, those with presenilin-1, presenilin-2, and APP gene. You're, it's amyloid-driven. If you have these genes, you're going to get the disease. But for the rest, amyloid is involved in the disease process. Maybe later on, maybe other factors contribute to the disease, and then amyloid process starts. Um, so amyloid is never out of the picture. Um, as, uh, and, and we were kind of shocked that all of a sudden the baby is thrown out with the bathwater and and everything is turned upside down because some people on social media said, oh, look, science bad. Just follow me because I'm, I have these pills that come from some mountain in, in, in Tibet. Um, but like you said, related to that, um, to that research, uh, FDA recently, was it two weeks ago, mm -hmm. uh, approved a monoclonal antibody, lecanemab, which is now touted as the first Alzheimer's drugs that is going to be available for patients. I mean, aducanumab was, but then it was withdrawn. So lecanabab is going to be the only um, Alzheimer's drug that basically reverses the symptoms of the disease. So it's a monoclonal antibody. That's why there's an MAB at the end. MAB is for monoclonal antibody. It helps clear amyloid from the brain. And in a study, which I will explain in just a few seconds, they found out that the, the uh, administration of this, this antibody reduced the load of amyloid in patients with early Alzheimer's pathology, and it slowed down cognitive decline in people who took the medication versus those who were on a placebo. There were a total of 1,795 participants. They were between the ages of 50 to 90 years. They were enrolled and 898 of them received lecanemab and 897 received placebo. They basically split the group into two. Both groups had early Alzheimer's disease and they had the same characteristics. You know, they were, they were adjusted for age, um, sex, uh, education, and all the other factors that affect cognition. And after 18 months, 
there was a 27% slower decline in cognitive scores among participants who received lecanemab compared to those who received placebo. And in a subset of the population, they looked at neuroimaging and they found that there was less amyloid in the brains of those who received lecanemab, which is amazing. So as far as the effect size was concerned, it wasn't tremendous. It was small. They used a cognitive test uh, that had 18-point scale, it ranged from normal to severe dementia. And those who got lecanabab were 0.45 points better off compared to those who got placebo. So that's a very small effect, but it was an effect. Um, it also resulted in some problems, as in any medication. 17% of uh, participants had small, tiny little bleeds in their brains, and about 13% of them had some level of brain swelling. 7% seven per seven of the participants had to stop taking the medication because of um, these and other related side effects. So what did we learn from this research? We learned that for the first time, we actually have some medicine that is showing some effect of slowing down cognitive decline in individuals with early Alzheimer's disease. Uh, whether the small effect impact um, impacts people's lives, that question needs to be explored further. I think 18 months is not long enough for us to understand that. But it's definitely a step forward, and we're very optimistic. It's only going to be reserved for individuals with mild symptoms during the early stages of Alzheimer's disease. And unfortunately, it's not available. It's not going to be available in the market anytime soon, probably in the next few, months. I would say, months uh, for insurance to start its approval process, etc. And it's not for individuals with moderate to advanced stages of Alzheimer's disease. Correct. Correct. No, but it's still, it's a very positive step. Um, the, this this drug is going to be used by a lot of people. We have the patients who have the early the, the early symptoms, and and the amount of desperation is just um, palpable. And every one of them that come to our clinics or or are in conversations with us uh, are asking for the for this drug, um, despite its potential side effects. Ironically, um, so we'll see how this you know, fully manifests. And also more importantly, what comes out of this downstream, what other research, what other drugs that can have less side effects and more um, positive outcomes. We still think that this is not a, uh, the only path. I think there are going to be many other paths that we have to explore. Earlier detection is important. The earlier we can detect uh, Alzheimer's, even prior to development of any symptoms. You know, and, and guess what we follow for that? Amyloid and tau. Um, um, but there are other markers that we should follow early on. And the earlier we detect that somebody's at risk, the, the, the more we can do as far as lifestyle is concerned. Reality is, if you all, us all, assume that we have risks, and we do, we live in a world where there are a lot of risks and the food we eat, the, the, the amount of movement, the exercise, everything else, critically important, then, then live in a particular way that's healthy. You reduce your risk for Alzheimer's, other dementias, heart disease, cancer, diabetes, and all of these things. So um, you know our mantra, lifestyle, 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 but also medication is a way to uh, treat those that are in the, in the middle of the battle. So we, we welcome this. Absolutely. All right, so the next one is um, a study that you actually sent um, earlier this morning, um, and it is about a multiple sclerosis gene. In 2022, a major breakthrough in the understanding of multiple sclerosis, or MS, was made when a specific gene was discovered to be a significant uh, factor for the development of the disease. And this gene is known as MS-associated gene, or MSG, and it was found to be a major contributor to the development of the disease. And, and this coming week, we're going to talk about <clears throat> multiple sclerosis. It's a devastating disease that affects millions of people, and it's a myelin disease. That's the, the surrounding uh, cells around the connections between neurons. Um, and it's, it's an interesting disease, and we, we've been debilitated because we don't have good, uh, we have disease-modifying treatments, but not the disease-reversing treatments. So the more we figure out the contributors to the disease, 
the more we can affect this uh, people who are who are suffering from this devastating disease. I've, I think some of the most um, devastated patients we've seen were MS patients um, because there are so many different kinds. Um, and, and in this case, they found a very, very important gene that can potentially open up the door for treatment mm -hmm. and, and potentially reversal. So, yeah. Amazing. Uh, so this gene <clears throat> is located on chromosome 5, and it's a member of the immunoglobulin superfamily and is believed to be involved in the regulation of immune system. Yes. Uh, which makes sense. Yes. And its expression is increased in MS patients. And it is thought that MSG is, plays a very important role in the development of MS by regulating pro-inflammatory cytokines, uh, which are molecules that can cause inflammation in the body. And this definitely can be a breakthrough because um, we've had a very fuzzy idea of how the immune system is involved in uh, multiple sclerosis. But now that we have um, tools uh, to essentially identify the polygenic nature of multiple sclerosis, identifying specific genes and um, creating specific treatments for these genes or, or ways to modulate them and address them, I think hopefully we'll have a better idea um, Absolutely. to deal with them better. And I'm I'm, I'm, after our conversation about artificial intelligence, I mean, that, that concept applies to so many of these different diseases, especially when there is a polygenicity or there is variations of different molecules and genes that contribute to the disease. Absolutely. I mean, uh, this is an autoimmune disease. And by the way, this, uh, the researchers speak to the fact that it, this has uh, also opened up to the door to other diseases like lupus and, and uh, uh, um, multiple other autoimmune diseases because at the at the core it's the the immune system that has gone awry and this um this gene is not an, only involved in the process uh, that 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 manifests in all in ms but also in other autoimmune diseases so i think in the next few years we will have some really amazing breakthroughs that uh, might alter the course of the diseases uh, such as uh, ms and lupus and others absolutely very very excited about it Okay, and then um, let's go ahead and talk about this interesting one, which blew my mind. Um, there's, there's research and evidence that scientists have developed brain reading devices that can help paralyzed people move, talk, and touch or feel. And that, that just is fascinating, and I had to make sure that I you know, read the paper a couple of times before I talk about it because it just sounded almost unreal. Well, you know that um, our kids, Alex and Sophie, are in this field and Sophie is on the mechanical side. She's a mechanical engineer, um, sophomore in, in college, and Alex um, is basically in his fifth year um, uh, in uh, AI and um, specifically AI as it pertains to medicine and co cognition. So, um, this is important because of its effect on so many conditions where the connection between the brain and the body are lost. Right. Some of those are paralysis, blindness, hearing loss, um, strokes, so many other disease, and, and demyelinating diseases like, um, well, Guillain-Barre is reversed, but uh, MS we were just talking about, and neuropathies. So what happens is there's a disconnection between the brain be it the motor cortex, even ALS, mm -hmm. motor cortex and, and the muscles or motor cortex or uh, our sight or, or the visual cortex in our sight. And the cortex is not able to communicate. So what if there are devices that can read brain patterns and then transmit that to the end organ, be it the arm, the leg, sight, speech, and we are now at the brink of doing just that. Where experiments that actually where people, the, the machine is reading brain patterns and then translating to people who are paralyzed into the spinal cord or into the muscles where they can move because their brain motor cortex is telling them to move. Up to now that connection was lost, but now that connection can be done through machine and hardware and, and get the moving going. Absolutely. Um, at this point, most of this is, um, um, close to the brain in, vi in, in, in vivo. Uh, basically, they have to go through the skull, either through surgery or while a person is having surgery or in, in many cases, uh, sadly, animals. But, and, and 
because the signal has to be close enough. But imagine in a few years where you can have signal detecting systems that are m much higher fidelity and can can get a, get rid of noise and can actually get the signal cleanly through the skull. And 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 so you don't have to do the surgery to go to the brain. Um, and then transmits it to the end organ, to the body, to the muscles, to the, uh, to the limbs and, and even sight. People who've never seen being able to see again. Some of that was actually already done a few years ago where a person that was blind was through a camera to the occipital lobe was able to see patterns. Um, and movement, millions of people that are paralyzed could actually start be, be able to move again. And imagine then enhancing that capacity that it can do it better than we could do now. So I mean, I'm not going to get too controversial. Let's just leave it at the point where we can move. And, and we pass beyond that. <laughs> beyond controversy, yeah, yeah, yeah. Those that people that are prone to be offended uh, will be offended. So, no. but, but, but I hope no. not. I hope you see the, uh, the my excitement is about the fact that we can, we can enhance, um, that somebody's going to say enhance nature. That's the, no, enhance ourselves and to be able to reach the, um, our full capacity or better and, and um, you know, truly take of this, this universe, this planet uh, of ours and to truly experience it. But, but the short of it is we are now at the brink of this kind of technology. Um, and I am so excited for it because of our kids. Uh, Sophie's doing a review paper right now on, on uh, uh, computer brain interface. Yeah, so and, that's what I was actually going yeah. to describe. So computer-brain interface or brain-computer interface or BCIs, that, that's the acronym that is used for it. So these are devices, as Dean mentioned, that allows people with paralysis or some physical disability to control this computers and other devices with their thoughts. So the technology works by detecting electrical signals from the brain and translating them into commands that can be used to control either a computer or a robotic device. And the study that was published that described the study was in Nature, which is an amazing journal, a very high impact factor and great information in it. And the researchers used these brain-computer interfaces to help four individuals who had paralysis uh, move their arms, hands, fingers, and they were also able to speak and touch and feel. The study participants were able to move their arms and hands with an average accuracy of 90%. That's crazy. This is, we're talking about first generation. That's just remarkable. Yeah. The outcome statistics was crazy. So I'm just going to give the statistics because everybody will be really interested. The average accuracy for arm and hand movement was 90%. Average accuracy for finger movement was 80%. Average accuracy for speaking was 70%. And for touching was 80%. Those are incredibly high numbers. That's <laughs> The sense of touch. Yes. And so, I mean, there, the results and the conclusion was that this is an amazing uh, opportunity. And uh, in the future, people will with paralysis will be able to regain some of their lost mobility and their communication abilities. That makes me so happy and hopeful for so many of my stroke patients, yes. especially the ones that were absolutely fine and healthy and suddenly something really bad happened and they had a stroke and they lost their capacity. So there's so much hope. Absolutely. Absolutely. Amazing. All right. So let's go ahead and end it with this fascinating, fun study where it says people can pick their friends that smell like them. Yeah, this is left field. <laughs> this is not technology and consciousness and all that, but but smell. We wanted to kind of end with this fun, fun, fun piece. So of the article discusses a study that was conducted by researchers at the University of Bern in Switzerland, and they found that people tend to choose their friends who have a similar body odor to their own. It was conducted by having participants smell <laughs> the armpits of different people and rate them on a scale of one to ten. Ew. Well, anything I, for science, yes. I'm not sure if I would enroll myself for that study. The results showed that people tended to rate the body odor of those who had a similar body odor to their own higher than those who did not. I can understand that. Uh, well, uh, our olfactory sense is one of our most primordial senses. Remember that 
if if we've come from amoebas and from bacteria and the only sense that the lower organisms have is a sense of smell chemical detection which is at the lower monocellular single cellular level is smell and as you go up you see that the 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 the, the one common sense is the sense of smell that continues throughout uh, all the way to the human level and and this is important because for us, we our, our sense of smell is not as strong as some other animals, but it's actually stronger than you think. In fact, the, there's a great book, Behave, which I, I read now. This is my second time going through it. Amazing, amazing book. And, and in there, it speaks about this fact that one of the things that connects babies with their mothers is that smell connection, that... that, that, that um, the, the vaginal canal and particular chemical reactions that are familiar to the fetus and it stays with them throughout life. And that's that sense of smell actually creates the family bond, that sense of smell creates the you know, group bond. And that sense of smell is understated, but it's very prevalent and very common. Um, what do we do with that sense of smell? Well, we know that it's connected to bonding and, 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 um, and reproduction and things of that nature. But uh, so what do we do with that? Um, I don't know what we're going to do with it because most of us try to get rid of it with the uh, um, deodorants and chemicals and uh, such, uh, different kind of things. But uh, it is a signal mechanism that gives us connection to memory. Remember the memory centers and the smell centers are right there in the uh, epicampus and the um, temporal lobe. There's a reason that the memory centers and the smell centers are together. And there's a reason that when you bond with somebody, there are certain bonds that immediately, they said there was a chemical reaction. Guess what that chemical reaction was? Maybe it was that sense of smell. You didn't smell their armpit. I hope you didn't. But the, 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 the proximity and that sense of smell and, and connection was maybe what drew you to them. Kind of interesting, kind of fun. I don't yeah. know what we're going to do with it. So there's it, some but... unconscious ways of selecting friends and people that you want to hang out with. Correct. Okay. Correct. Wonderful. Well, fantastic. All right. So um, 2022 was... A wonderful year 2023 is going to be epic and there's so many things coming up um, and we're so excited to be uh, connected with you all our lovely audience um, your messages your uh, reviews your feedback means the world to us and the two of us Dean and I we take pride in process improvement yes. and I think I think that comes from our science background we're always trying to see if we can improve ourselves and we really appreciate all of the uh, the feedback that we're getting uh, from you all. Um, regardless, 2022 was an amazing year for us. We um, wanted to kind of just highlight a couple of things uh, for our Healthy Minds Initiative, which is our non-for-profit. Well, we have two non-for-profits. Right. Our Healthy Minds Initiative, which is our non-for-profit for community brain health. We won the National Academy of Medicine Award. We're very excited about that. We wrote two book chapters. Uh, we published several important papers, including the two papers, the systematic reviews on omega-3 fatty acids for adults and children. Those are the two. And we had the pleasure of being part of the Infinity Study. We launched our Neuro Academy, which is our uh, membership-based online ecosystem. Amazing ecosystem. And um, it's, it's, it's an amazing program where you'll have access to resources to achieve optimal brain health, a sharper memory, prevent cognitive decline. You'll have access to us on a monthly live Q&A sessions, live cooking sessions, podcasts, and Q&As with remarkable health leaders. And we also have ongoing um, uh, on-demand courses on prevention of neurological diseases. We're about to launch one on nutrition and cooking very soon. We have a behavior one. And uh, there's going to be multiple different uh, courses in the future as well. And Participants are able to get CE and CME credits if they're interested and also receive certification after attending the courses. And you can get more information on neuroacademy.com. Uh, it'd be wonderful to have you in that community. community. And our second non-for-profit is Restore Her Voice. Restore Her Voice is a uh, platform that we put together um, as a call to action of what was happening to women's rights, specifically of Afghan women's rights back in August of 2021. And we were able to create a community of wonderful people who are helping us towards that goal. And the idea is to create 
a platform for women where they can be the voice for other women as well. We focused on Afghan women, but it is for all women because we need to be able to give them the opportunity to show their strengths and run the world. And we have examples of women who have been given the opportunity where they did tremendous work for their communities and for the world at large. So thank you so much for joining us. Any parting words? No, the, let's have a, a positive, proactive, powerful, epic year. And I think um, we're, we're going to um, um, expand their academy, expand the non-for-profits, and would love for you guys to um, participate with us in, this, in, in these endeavors because uh, as much as the physicists were taking over the world for a while, neuroscience is where it is. So um, uh, we hope that the world of neuroscience will, will really blossom in the next few years. Connect with us on social media at The Brain Docs, and all of this information will be in the notes. And send us an email and join our newsletter if you're interested. Contact at sharesimd.com. We love you all. Really excited to give you uh, all of the information that we have in store as far as brain health is concerned and brain empowerment is concerned. And see you all on the next episode. Have a great day. Mm-hmm.